If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, today we are going to be speaking with Rashida Childress and Emily Haynes about what is very rapidly becoming a staffing crisis in fundraising in the nonprofit sector. And if you're working in the sector as an executive director or in almost any position, you already have a sense that we are facing a big problem when it comes to staffing in our fundraising offices. This is especially true if you're in a small or medium-sized nonprofit. And I know this in part because, you know, I do interim executive director engagements and, well, I've seen it as an executive director, but I also know it because almost every week, more than one executive director will say to me, Dolph, we are offering more than we ever have before in order to find a development director, a development manager, or a coordinator, and we can't find anybody. What are we going to do? And so this war for talent has frankly spiraled salaries for fundraisers even higher, resulted in more staff churn in those development shops that are lucky enough to have more than one person, and as I said, has really impacted small and medium-sized nonprofits. And to explore this topic, we are going to have a conversation with Rashida Childress and Emily Haynes. They are journalists who do deep dives with the greatest fundraising minds around the globe. And this also means that they have the luxury, and I mean genuinely the luxury, of thinking about fundraising from a bird's eye perspective. Those of us that are executive directors, board chairs, or development directors running a shop, you know, that's not a luxury. You've got the everyday fundraising fires that you're thinking about, and they get to see it from a very different perspective. Rashida Childress has 25 years of professional journalism experience. She is currently the senior editor in charge of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and Emily Haynes is a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Philanthropy and is on their fundraising beat. 
I will also just share with you, I remember the good old days of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. This is pre-internet, and once a week we would get the print publication, and it would actually go to my development director, and then eventually it get passed to me. So I get it, I'd get it a couple of weeks later, and I'd look through it, and then I will also admit, I would always look in the jobs at the back, and I'd be like, maybe one day, maybe one day I can have one of those really great jobs, because all the best ones seem to be in the back of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Now, in addition to that, they also, as part of their work at the Chronicle Philanthropy, write a weekly fundraising newsletter that goes to more than 10,000 subscribers. And we, of course, are going to put information about how to subscribe to that in our show notes. And they also host webinars and interviews with experts on topics that are related to fundraising. Rashida and Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And just one point of clarification, I'm the senior editor for fundraising at the the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Oh, uh, see, this is why, I, you know, I already said any crackpot can have a podcast. This is why I'm not a journalist, because I already got it wrong. <laughs> I am so sorry. Okay, I will make sure we get that right in the show notes. So one of the things that I hear again and again from executive directors is we can't find good fundraising staff at a pay rate that doesn't swamp our pay scales. I've literally had executive directors say to me, in order for us to hire a development director, we'd have to increase my salary as the executive director, our finance person's salary. And then, of course, that trickles all the way down to people who are case managers, receptionists, et cetera. So let's talk about that. Why can't we find good fundraising staff at rates that, you know, frankly, we used to be able to? Um, you know, that's a tough one. I mean, I think it depends on the area. We did a survey of 685 fundraisers and we asked them sort of what their key concerns were. And a lot of it has been about what it was like working in the pandemic when they were short-staffed, when people were burning out. And so a lot of it's going to be ensuring that you've got some work-life balance there. And certainly if you have a good fundraiser doing everything you can to hold on to them. Emily, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think kind of the inconvenient truth is that it's just a lot more expensive right now. And so the salaries that used to cut it in the nonprofit field are just not enough for a family to live off of. In this reporting, I talked with um, a fundraiser at the University of Central Arkansas. And, you know, comparatively, the cost of living is fairly low in Arkansas, but she was still finding that she couldn't attract the fundraisers that she wanted to attract because her university wasn't able to pay the right salaries. So she ended up uh, creating a um, fundraiser incentive, bonus incentive program that was funded through the university's foundation um, with the hope that it would be donor funded down the road. But there are little things that groups can do to try and attract fundraisers. I mean, as a former nonprofit employee, I do have to say that the the idea of what constitutes a living wage in the nonprofit community hasn't always been accurate, but I do think that the cost constraints are real. And we tried in this article knowing that to, to come up with other solutions that were not pay-based for folks. And so obviously pay is a big part of it. And, and I know I'm hoping we're also going to be talking about equity, inclusion, and diversity as well as we're talking about fundraising today and fundraising staff. And our friends who listen to the podcast have heard me say this before. I also think the game has just changed in a lot of ways. You know, it, it used to be people working in direct service positions, whether it's at a fast food restaurant or like a Best Buy, might make $10 an hour. And now, you know, they're going to make between $15 and $20 an hour. And, you know, that world where they would make $10 an hour was a world where 
the development coordinator might make 50. But suddenly it doesn't make sense that, you know, someone who's getting a job at a fast food restaurant could potentially be making $40,000 a year, and the development coordinator, with a few years of experience and a college degree, is barely making more than that. Yeah, no, it doesn't seem fair. And I think, you know, the salaries, organizations are doing the best that they can. I think, you know, when you're doing their budgets, they have to look at salaries. And some organizations have to bite the bullets. You're going, you know, it's going to be really hard to pay some of your frontline fundraisers less money. And organizations have been looking at ways to do that, like Emily said, through the bonus program, through budgeting. If they can't, um, you can help fundraisers feel like they have more money in their pockets by doing more remote and hybrid positions. One of the fundraisers I spoke to um, had said, you know, most people aren't even willing to consider unless it's a hybrid position because they want that flexibility. They want to, particularly if you're in a big city, not to spend two hours commuting and however much that is in gas or public transportation fare and that kind of time so that maybe, you know, if they have a hobby of painting, they've, they've got those two hours back in the day and they can do it. So that's also helpful if you can have hybrid. I mean, fundraisers are people people person. So they're never going to just be like, I'm never coming to the office, but they do want that flexibility so that they can have more time to talk to donors, to do those things without saying, let me drive two hours or let me drive an hour and a half to sit in an office and make my donor calls. And I know you all have mentioned a potential bonus program a couple of times. What have those looked like? Um, I can speak to that. So I don't actually know if this one has been adopted because when I was interviewing the fundraiser who created it, she hadn't yet gotten approval from her board. Um, the board hadn't met yet. But basically how it worked was it assigned points to various metrics. And then the fundraisers who received the most points, the metrics were having meaningful interactions with donors, requesting contributions of $15,000 or more, closing gifts, and meeting their individual revenue goals whoever had the most points was able to get a bonus. And then each fundraiser also received additional points for winning lower value gifts of $1,000 to $14,999. But donor interactions were weighted the highest and then total revenue raised was rated the lowest. So it's kind of like a weighted point system. And do you know, I mean, in that particular case situation, was the bonus... Would that increase someone's salary or someone's conversation by 10%, by 50%? Like, what what kind of numbers were they talking? I don't know the numbers, okay. unfortunately. No worries. I, I was just curious because I'm just, just trying to figure out, like, how all that shakes out in terms of compensation. Um, and then I know we've talked about some non-cash things, for example, like more flexibility, being able to work from home, et cetera. Are there other non-cash items that organizations have been able to offer fundraisers to lure them? Um, a huge one is professional development opportunities. Something that um, our survey certainly showed is that fundraisers at nonprofits can often feel like there are no path for advancements at their organization. And I spoke with folks at UNICEF um, for a program that that they developed and launched back in 2019. And it's called the Major Gift Leadership Academy Program. And the impetus for that was that in 2018, 30% of their major gift fundraisers quit. And that is just way too big of a number. The problem, as probably your listeners know, when major gift, especially major gift fundraisers quit, is those ties with donors are really personal relationships. 
And it's a hindrance for donors if they have to rebuild that relationship with a new person who may not know their likes and dislikes, who just they may not have a rapport with. And so it's in an organization's best interest to retain those fundraisers over the long haul. So the goal for this program was to kind of reinvigorate fundraisers who were on staff by trying to kind of solve feelings of isolation and feelings of burnout. And so the the first cohort, half of it, unfortunately, had happened during the pandemic. So, But they just wrapped their second cohort, which got to meet in person four times throughout the year. And these were fundraisers coming from offices all over the world. They met in four different locations, always in person. They met at the Lilly School of Philanthropy, where they discussed donor psychology and global philanthropy trends and they got to go to Geneva where UNICEF is headquartered and they actually practiced how program staff respond to disasters which kind of gave them a firsthand knowledge of when they're speaking with donors when they're trying to raise money in response to something like the floods in Pakistan or something they actually have a sense of what is required from staff they also took the cohort to Zambia where they essentially went on a donor visit. There were no donors, just the fundraisers, but they got to meet with program staff and kind of see the impact on the ground of their programs there. And then it concluded in New York City where they did some more leadership training and met their colleagues there. So, you know, I talked with a UNICEF official who said that for a lot of these fundraisers, it kind of feels like college again, and they get these kind of international friendships that develop and they can They have this really active WhatsApp group where they can kind of connect when they're not together and kind of run hairy fundraising issues by each other. So it's kind of fostered this sense of community that, you know, makes not only fundraisers feel like they belong somewhere, but also gives them a a greater tie-in to the mission. And we've heard so much that fundraisers feel so siloed from the mission sometimes. So any small thing you can do, it, it may not be flying them to, to Geneva, but if you can, you know, include your fundraisers more in organization-wide decisions, that sort of thing, it makes a big difference. And and I would imagine, I mean, for smaller or medium-sized organizations that might not have the resources or even the number of fundraising staff, maybe there are some other ways, whether it's going to conferences or getting to do learning journeys, you know, going across the country and meeting a colleague at an organization that you're, that's in the same association as you or something like that. Because I, I do think like what UNICEF was able to do is really unique to its size, whereas the vast majority of nonprofits, you know, they're so much smaller and have one, maybe two fundraisers. And by the way, I know some listeners right now are going, Dolph, I'm the executive director and the office manager and the fundraiser. I don't have a fundraiser. That's certainly common. Yeah. But something we heard from folks is like, maybe you can't give your fundraiser a raise. Maybe you can't give them a bonus, but like, could you pay for them to go to the annual AFP conference or something like that? So it's still an expense, but maybe slightly more affordable. Rashida, jump in. I was just going to say, just in terms of the advancement, just showing them where they can advance within the organization is helpful. You know, um, we talked to people at Penn State and they do have a bigger program, but they definitely want to promote their people within because they don't want their people to leave and take those relationships with them. So like almost half of their fundraising job openings were internal promotions so that those people felt like we sh- we have a future here. We have a path here. And if you are a small nonprofit and you have one fundraiser, just help 
help them understand sort of what that progression looks like. So they understand, you know, I don't need to leave in order to have progress. I don't need to leave. And it could be something even as simple as sort of changing their title as they get more responsibility so that they are feeling as if they are um, making progress and that they have career advancement. It's interesting you say that. My first job at a fundraiser was with a family service organization. And I started off as a grant manager. And and then every 18 months to two years, they would move me into a new position. So then I ended up as a development coordinator for a couple of years. And then they let me do some low-level major gifts work. And I ended up being there almost seven years. And, and I was young. And I feel pretty confident that had they not given me that mobility, I probably would not have been there almost seven years. So it's interesting you say that because that was also a different market where, you know, you didn't make as much. There was not quite as much demand. But yeah, I, I could totally see that. So can we also have a conversation around equity, inclusion, and diversity as we're thinking about fundraising staff? I know that you all have written an article about that, about the progress that's been made and also the work that, you know, frankly, is still left to be done. Yeah, our survey didn't look deeply at this issue of equity and diversity. However, we did get some open-ended comments that were really very critical. One person, you know, said that there is a white supremacist culture in fundraising, which is pretty harsh. And most of our survey respondents were, um, I did, did identify as white, self-identify. And so, you know, when you had 70% of the people say our diversity is great, well, 70% of the respondents were white. So it's really hard to tell when you have people who may not be as sensitive to the issue coming in. But I think if you want to really um, look at the issue, you need to look at your community and that's going to help you. Do your fundraisers look like your community if you have multiple fundraisers? You know, if you're serving a community, is that who it looks like? Do your donors look like your your community? And so that's going to help you figure out better if you have issues with diversity. If you look and it kind of matches, you're probably okay. You know, if you're in a, you know, I don't want to pick on Iowa, but let's say Iowa. <laughs> um, I but think you, we'll pick on Iowa, Iowa, right? <laughs> you know, we'll pick on but certain communities. You may not have a huge amount of diversity, but if you're in Chicago, your fundraising, you know, crew should probably look a little bit different than if you're in Utah. Right, right. And I hear, I mean, in, in the in the transgender community, there's a, there's a phrase, nothing about us without us. And so I, I hear you 100%. Like, if you're a trans organization, yeah, your fundraiser, you know, should probably be a trans person. Now, as you think about equity within staffing our fundraising offices, obviously, we want it to reflect the communities we serve. Is there anything else in, in the work that you've done as journalists that kind of leads you to think there are other things we need to be doing differently? Yeah, I think it's really just taking a step back and looking at at your organization wanting to do it. I mean, let's face it, fundraisers are burnt out and they're tired and they're barely able to raise funds. Um, so you've got to have someone who has the time to look at that or makes the time to sit back, take a bird's eye view and look at, hey, are we meeting our diversity goals? Um, and not just a view, sort of a gut check but more like look at the data. What does our community look like? What do our fundraisers look like? What do our donors look like? And try to find that information. And, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a little bit of time. But I think if someone wants to dig in, um, they can find that data and make some changes. And the question is, when you find the data, what changes do you make? And that's something that your organization can think through and um, look for some best practices on to, to make some changes. We also hear so much from people that 
the path into fundraising is really unclear. And, you know, you go to all these conferences and you hear people say, well, I just fell into fundraising. Something that seems like fundraisers could maybe spend more time doing, especially at leadership levels, is thinking of ways that they could create a clear career path so that when people are thinking about what they want to do, spending their with their career, they can consider fundraising. You don't really like major in fundraising in college or something like that. And it's not really something that formally many people feel like they have experience with growing up, even if they give to their church or run races and raise money from friends, people don't always put that together as fundraising. So when you're thinking about how you can reflect your community more, maybe put some thought into reaching out to the community to show fundraising as a career path. Emily, I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that because it's not something that I thought about, but you're right. I mean, I kind of fell into fundraising. Almost everyone who's done it has fallen into it, but there's probably some systemic bias and discrimination and racism and sexism and homophobia about who, quote unquote, falls into what's, you know, one of the better paying tracks in the nonprofit sector and who doesn't. Yeah, I don't have any data to back yeah. that up, but it's certainly, I talk with a lot of folks and um, there's very few people that talk to me about graduating from college intending to be a fundraiser, so yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm right there with you. That's an interesting way to think about it. And again, thank you. It's kind of opened up a new, a new thought in my mind around that and I'm going to spend some time with it. Thank you. I also want us to have a little bit of a conversation about your fundraising update newsletter. So I understand you've got about 10 or 11,000 subscribers. And what are some of the things that you all have learned about fundraising through that newsletter? It's really just a way to sort of keep abreast of what's going on with fundraising. So uh, there are a fair amount of sort of studies and data. And um, even Emily was working on a study today talking about, you know, where people are with their thoughts about how well they're going to do in this economy as fundraisers, because you know, we, we like to think that fundraisers can <laughs> go out and make a lot of difference and they can make a lot of difference, but so does sort of, a, you know, the donor's economic position and the, the general economy. And so there's just a lot of great sort of data and tidbits that people can use as examples of ways that they can do fundraising. We've written about different things like uh, porch parties as ways fundraisers and events and just various studies that are out there just kind of keeping on the pulse of things. We also try and do like a roundup of fundraising in the news, which admittedly can be very hard because not a lot of outlets cover fundraising like we do because our audience is a trade audience. But um, after uh, the holidays, Rashida did a great roundup looking at all the different, mostly social services groups that had been profiled mostly in local news about their struggles to meet their fundraising targets. So it definitely pushes us to look at other news sources and how sort of the the, the layman, so to speak, is, is thinking about fundraising on a day-to-day basis. And I will say, I think so often fundraising in the news, other than like in something like the Chronicle of Philanthropy, um, fundraising in the news is normally kind of, oh my gosh, there was a problem. Like, you know, oh, this fundraiser happened and look, the money didn't go where it was supposed to. Or look, this organization didn't meet their fundraising target. Um, so I, I do think you're right about that. Like, we don't see a lot of like good news in the mainstream because, well, that's not what the mainstream news is about. I am so grateful to you both for joining me today for this conversation, and I cannot end it unless we ask you an off-the-map question. And I think I've got a good one for you. But And by the way, you all are actually the second 
set of journalists that I've talked to today. So I've asked this question once before, um, but that's, this, that person was actually a former journalist who moved over to PR, I should say. If a high school senior was thinking about majoring in journalism and asked you about the future of their profession, what would you say? I think it, I would say to be ready to change. I think that's the most important thing because journalism has changed. It used to be so... Um, it felt very delineated when I was in school, sort of like you're a print journalist or you're a broadcast journalist, but now we have podcasts. We have journalists who are, you know, when you're on the radio, you're you're out there doing stories. And so they're internet journalists. So I think it's going to be changing. It's not going to be the same world it was. Who knows what it's going to look like um, 10 years from now. So just be good at the fundamentals that getting your, you know, getting to know people, getting to know your sources, getting the information accurate, but just be ready to change. I like that. Emily, how about you? Well, kudos to this high school senior for already thinking that they are majoring in journalism because I did not do that. So they have one step above me. Yeah. Don't use my environmental studies degree so much in my job, but, um, I I think, like Rashida said, it is ever-changing. Something I'm really excited about is, and this is not just because the Chronicle is becoming a nonprofit news site, but I am really excited about nonprofit newsrooms. I hope, I mean, it seems like they have a lot of potential to revive local news and to kind of shine a light on, on niche issues, whether it is environmental issues or whether they're investigating local politics and that sort of thing. So it can seem kind of bleak for journalism, but that's an area that that gives me a lot of hope right now. And I have to say, you just told me something that, and I'm ashamed to say this, I did not realize the Chronicle of Philanthropy is converting over to become a nonprofit. We are pending approval from the IRS. So yeah, we're in that process now. Wow. So another ignorant question, is that all the Chronicles, like the Chronicle of Higher Education, Chronicle of Philanthropy, et cetera, or just Chronicle of Philanthropy? It's just us. Okay. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. If you want to, there's an article about it on our website. If you want to put it in your show notes, we're not like breaking news here. We <laughs> we announced it last year, but um, it's a long process as you can imagine. So. Oh my gosh. I love that. And here I thought I had the scoop. Okay. I guess not. No um. <laughs> Rashida would definitely be like, stop talking. <laughs> If I had just stuck it out of hand. So. No, I, I had figured that I did not have the scoop, but that's awesome. Like, okay, Dolph, this is not breaking news. We announced this last year. I love that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very, very grateful that you did. Uh, and I always want to make sure that our listeners know how to find you. And that's pretty easy because it's philanthropy.com. And at philanthropy.com, my dear friends, there are a few articles you might want to check out. One is Desperately Seeking Fundraisers. Another is How UNICEF Aims to Hang On to Its Major Gift Officers. And a third is Fundraisers Questions About How Much Progress Has Been Made in DEI. And we're, those are really long URLs, so we're going to link to those in the show notes, along with the article that they're working on becoming a nonprofit newsroom. And we're also in the show notes going to put a link to sign up for their fundraising update, which again is an e a weekly email newsletter that's aimed at helping fundraisers do their jobs better and goes out to about 10, 11,000 people every week. Rashida, Emily, thank you so much for joining today. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. All right, listeners. 
Other than philanthropy.com, I did not have any URLs. But if you want to get all of the links to all those articles, just go to successfulnonprofits.com and you can get the links to those articles. And if you found this episode to be useful, if you think, hmm, yeah, I got some ideas for retaining fundraising staff or I got some ideas for how we could really recruit some fundraisers when we're having some difficulty doing it. There are two additional episodes you should consider. And by the way, they're back-to-back episodes. One is episode 264 with Crystal Lamp, and that's Philanthropy Trends of 2022. And the other is episode 265, Become a Competitive and Equitable Employer with Kevin Dean. Because whether we're talking about fundraising, direct service, management, whatever, we have to be committed to being an equitable employer. And finally, my dear friends, I've got a big ask for you, and that big ask is please, please review the podcast. And if you reviewed it, then tell a friend about it. That is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And you know, I'm so tired of saying this. I say it five, six times a month because we batch record the podcast, but I say it because the lawyers make me do it. I am not an accountant, nor am I an attorney. This should not be a surprise, but it is for some people. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. That should also not be a surprise. I would also recommend that you not get tax, legal, or accounting advice on a podcast. Come on for crying out loud. If that is what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and seek out the counsel that you need. And if you are not sure what type of professional you should talk to, you can reach out to me and I'm happy to help you figure that part out.